You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the future in this year's wildest super fun show for adults. Hey gang, it's Josh Olson. And Joe Dante. And we want to tell you about our podcast. It's about movies. Josh, there are a thousand podcasts about movies. Sure, but ours is different, Joe. That's true, actually. Our guests are writers, directors, musicians, comedians, actors. Hell, we even have other podcasters on. We play no favorites, and they don't talk so much about their own work but about the movies that have influenced them and made them who they are. We call it the movies that made me. We've talked with people like Guillermo del Toro, Little Stevie Van Zandt, Martin Short, Ethan Hawke, William Freakin, Barbara Crampton, Jonathan Ross, Dennis Lehane, Mark Duplass, Adam McKay, Lorraine Newman, Jason Reitman, Alison Anders, Elijah Woods, Stephen Canales, Eli Roth, Joe Bob Briggs, Roger Corman, Bobcat Goldthwait, Leon Douglas, Dana Gould, Martin Campbell, Shane Black, Albert Hughes, Emily Deschanel, Joe Biafra, Larry Fessenden, Nicole Hawson, Shaka King, Lee Daniels, Roslyn Chow, Clancy Brown, Harvey Smith, Ike Arnold, Steve Arquette, Thomas Melton, Jim, and Uwe Boll. It may not be highbrow, but it's lots of fun. Subscribe for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. In color to thrill you as never before. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! All right! Quiet on the set! Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. So Steve, <laughs> um, I've been thinking a lot about iconic cities. Yeah, of course. And when Lindsay and I got married, my dream had always been to go to Paris with the man I love. Aww. And I had never <laughs> been. 2008, we get an opportunity to go to Paris. And leading up to it, I am so excited. And we'd go on our hike in the morning and I'd say, honey, I just, I'm so excited to see the Eiffel Tower. I can't tell you. And I would get, you know, a little verklempt, a little, oh. a little teary. Oh, thinking about seeing the Eiffel Tower with the man I love. And this goes on for, you know, a couple weeks before the trip. And finally, I launch into it one, one more time. And he turns to me and he says, are you sure you're not building this up too much? <laughs> and I was like, it's the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> know, sure how... enough, the next, when we go, the, the day that we land, we see the Eiffel Tower and I am a mess. I'm just bawling because I'm so excited to see this Eiffel Tower, which brings me to today's episode, because this city's iconic image is the Hollywood sign. Of course. We have our own Eiffel Tower and the Hollywood sign. Oh, we really do. Do you remember seeing it for the first time, what your impressions were of it? Was it... Oh, uh, my gosh. Well, you know, it, it's funny because I saw it, of course, in movies first. I remember as a kid, I saw it very prominently in a movie called Down Three Dark Streets, which was a really cool film noir with Broderick Crawford and Ruth Roman. And the, the climax of the film 
come occurs at the base of the Hollywood sign where Ruth Roman has been blackmailed and she's brought all this money to the base of the Hollywood sign where she's going to give it to the, the bad guy. And the bad guy ended up being her boyfriend, played by Casey Adams, I think. But of course, Broderick Crawford's the cop and he's there and he saves her. But there's a struggle and the money goes flying everywhere underneath the Hollywood sign. And that was probably my first introduction to the Hollywood sign. So they were literally there or was it a set? They literally shot it. Oh, they did shoot it there. But, I think back in those days, they had access to it and they could actually shoot there. Right. And if you haven't seen the movie, it's the coolest thing to see just for that final scene underneath the Hollywood sign. But when I moved to Beechwood Canyon in 1989, the first time I saw the Hollywood sign, it was it was like that, that it yeah. was that moment. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, and, and Beechwood was so fun because in those days, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, you could go and go to the Beechwood Cafe, which was, I think, called the Village Coffee Shop then. And you could see, you know, there'd be Kevin Costner or Jodie Foster. I would see often Juliette Lewis with this good looking blonde fella <laughs> named Brad Pitt. <laughs> They were dating at the time. I would see them a lot, but everyone knew her, but we didn't know who he was. Right, right. Or you could look across the street and there would be this beautiful Spanish house, you know, Academy Award nominee Ned Beatty fixing his old cars. Right. I mean, that was just the fun of what's underneath the Hollywood sign, which of course is where my blog got its name. Right, right. And that whole area is so iconic in terms of the architecture. As you said, the Spanish homes. I remember a mutual friend of ours had a beautiful apartment that was... Um, Art Deco, two-story. I loved visiting Amy, you know, at her apartment. And just because you're so close to the sign, there's just something about that canyon that is, it has just a vibe. There's such a magic to it. And I think it's just because of the sign and what that sign has come to represent. But, you know, I remember in the old days, before 9-11, they didn't have all the security and all of that. You could hike up to the sign and be amongst it. You could climb on the H, you could climb on the and a really good friend of mine, Sarah, and I climbed up there one time. We did it from the front because we didn't know there was a road you could have just walked up to the, oh. be behind it. So we <laughs> literally climbed up the hill and it was treacherous and it was the most beautiful views you've ever seen. And the thing I remember the most, and I'll never forget it, is once we got there, mm-hmm. beneath the letters on the ground, sprinkled around, somebody had taken a stack of their headshots and shredded them into little pieces and thrown them everywhere. They were scattered to the wind all beneath the Hollywood sign. Oh, my gosh. And that has haunted me for years because I almost thought, well, this was some heartbroken actress's final ritual before moving back home. Before moving back home. And giving up the dream. And I think that also was represented in the Hollywood sign. It's not only the dream, it's what happens when the dream doesn't come to fruition. Right, right. The headshot, for anybody that doesn't know, being the business card of an actor, the 8 by 10 photo of you is kind of everything. And especially when we used to have to print them. Now it's all all digital. Absolutely. But there was one actress in particular, since you just mentioned that story that I'd love to talk about. Tell us about Peg. Well, most people associate the Hollywood sign with this young actress because I think the Hollywood sign became a symbol of, as I just said, not only the the dream, but the dark side of Hollywood. And I think that was really brought to the forefront by this 24-year-old struggling actress named Peg Entwistle. And for people who don't know, Peg Entwistle, she was a British-born actress. She had a lot of success in New York on Broadway. So during the height of the Great Depression, she came to Los Angeles in the touring company of a play called The Mad Hopes, which starred Billy Burke, as we all wow. love, from Glinda the Good Witch yes, from, the Wizard, from of Oz. the Wizard of Oz. And the play also featured a young actor named Humphrey Bogart. Oh, I've heard of him. But after the play closed, she stayed in Los 
Los Angeles because she wanted to break into movies. And she lived with her aunt and uncle um, on Beachwood Drive, I think 2428 North Beachwood Drive. The house is still there. looks really? exactly the same. Wow. And it's, a, it's right across the street from my very first apartment when I moved to Beachwood. So it all oh kind of is connected. Gosh. But Peg had a really hard time. She didn't make the splash in Hollywood like she did in New York. She struggled. You know, she only made one film. I mean, and it should have been a good film. It should have been a prestigious film. It was directed by David Oselznick. It was called 13 Women. Okay. And it starred Myrna Loy. So Irene, it had names. Irene Dunn. Yes. It had great stars, a great producer behind it. But Peg's part ended up being cut to shreds in the editing room. And it ended up being a very, very tiny part. The movie flopped. Peg went into this really deep depression. I think she drank quite a bit. Mm. Um, so unfortunately, on September the 16th, 1932, Peg hiked up the steep terrain of the Hollywood sign, which Sarah and I did in the 90s. And she climbed up the service ladder atop the H and jumped and committed suicide. Wow. Do we know who found her and how quickly that well, happened? It was a couple of days later, uh, I think it was September the 18th, a hiker found Peg's purse and her sweater neatly folded, and inside the purse was a suicide note. And oh. it's, a, it's the saddest note. It, it said, I am afraid I'm a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, I would have saved a lot of pain. Wow. Oh, kills That's you. just heartbreaking. It's just the heartbreak of Hollywood, which yes. there's plenty of, of that out there. Well, it's interesting. I think that as actors, one has to have that sensitive heart. But at the yeah. same time, that sensitivity can lead to yeah. heartbreak. Absolutely. And it can be really hard to have a tough skin and a soft heart. Hollywood ain't for sissies. No, it's not. <laughs> well, yeah, a fun fact about Peg, I'll, I'll kind of throw this in there. Peg was once married to an actor named Robert Keith, and his son became famous as Brian Keith. Oh, my. Who we all know as right. Uncle we were, Bill we, from at, yeah, yeah, we were Family talking, Affair. Yes. yes. And we just talked about having seen Parent Trap oh, again right. recently. He yeah. was the original father in The Parent Trap. He was a yummy guy. Yeah, well, it's funny, too, kind of about Peg, sort of some of the rumors, because when Peg jumped, I think it changed everything. There were lots of rumors, and, you know, there's this long-standing rumor that the next day after she jumped, her aunt and uncle got a telegram or a, a letter or something, and it was an offer for a movie role for Peg. We don't know if that's true, we don't, but... It, I, it's never been substantiated, okay. but that rumor's been around for decades. And, yeah. and isn't that, wouldn't that be just the worst timing ever? Was the land gone from the sign at that point, Hollywood Land? Not yet. Okay. It was still up it there. It was still Hollywood um, Land. You know, another weird thing about you know, Peg and her suicide was after she jumped, everyone said that the Hollywood sign was haunted. And uh, people who have hiked up there for decades since say they can smell Peg's perfume, which smells like gardenia. And there's been numerous reports of park rangers in Griffith Park who have said they have seen an image of a young girl dressed in 30s attire who seemed distressed. When they would go to try to reach her, she would vanish. There's been many reports of that. So, you know, maybe the sign's haunted. Who knows? Who knows? Speaking of ghosts, I understand that there was... A rather bizarre utopian society called Cretona that popped up in the canyon in, what was it, 1919? Well, it was actually 1912. Oh, even earlier. Yeah, it's funny. Beachwood Canyon just was a magnet for, I think, spiritualists and, and people seeking spiritual enlightenment. And, and one of the first to hit there it was actually called the Theosophical Society. And um, in 1912... 
uh, the Theosophical Society. It was a spiritual movement that started in the late 1800s. It was all about self-evolution based on art and philosophy and science, and it was very woo-woo, and they believed in seances, and they believed in the occult. They were looking for a utopia. They were looking for their own uh, Shangri-La, mm-hmm. and they found it in Lower Beachwood Canyon. Um, they, there were 10 acres for sale, and they loved the area. They felt that it had the right woo-woo you know, feeling to it. Kind so, of what we were talking about earlier. Exactly. The the, the vibe. The vibe that's still there. So they bought these 10 acres and they created their own Garden of Eden, sort of. They called it Cretona. And the society itself, it was really appealing to creative types. And in fact, there were so many well-known writers who got involved in this Theosophical Society. Lewis Carroll, who wrote uh, Alice in Wonderland, Mm -hmm. was involved. Uh, Jack London, who wrote Call of the Wild. Uh, James Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Some heavyweights. Some heavyweights really bought into this spiritual movement and were really involved. So there's a lot of money involved. So they ended up building these beautiful houses that were sort of Moorish in architecture mm-hmm. style. They were built by some of the you know most well-known architects in Los Angeles, and they created this little society at, in Lower Beachwood. But then again, as Beachwood Canyon got more populated, I think their little Garden of Eden got invaded. So they right. ended up moving the whole operation to Ojai in 1924. So they checked out. <laughs> But there is still a spiritual community in Beechwood. There's a wonderful monastery at the base of Beechwood Canyon called the Monastery of the Angels, which is kind of known for its baked goods. Yes, they had pumpkin bread, I remember getting, that was delicious. It's amazing. But there was a a group of nuns there uh, for many, many, many decades who were cloistered. And, you know, they ran the bakery and things like that. But just recently, the nuns got kicked out. (laughs) Why did they get kicked out? There were only five left. And I think they were getting older in age. So I I think the church came in and relocated the ladies. So there's no there's no nuns in the monastery anymore. It's really sad. Wow. I wonder what they're going to do with that property. I did talk to the caretaker of the property. He said that it's going to stay within the church. They're not going to raise it and build oh, a, a Walmart or anything like that. Good. Thank, thank goodness. So I wish I had some of that pumpkin bread right now. Well, you know, interestingly enough, you can still order it online. Uh, if you go to monasterygoodies.com, you can still order. Their, their, they have pumpkin bread. They have toffee. They have all these great candies and goods that still goes to help the, I think it's for the grounds for the monastery. So. Okay. So, Steve, going back to the tragedy of Peg, there have been other tragedies in the canyon. One in particular that I want to talk about is an actor who died at just 31 years old. Um, His name was Peter Duell. Can you tell us about Peter? Yeah, that's another one of those weird things that happened in Beechwood Canyon. And, and um, you know, Peter Duell was a, a real up-and-coming actor. He, you know, he had starred in Gidget with Sally Field. And I think she, he played her brother-in-law on the series. And, you know, he was really starting to make a name for himself. Uh, you know, in 1970, he got cast in a, kind of a really fun lighthearted Western called Alias Smith and Jones with Ben Murphy. Uh, you know, so he was really on his way. And very good looking guy. Oh, great looking, really good actor, lots of charisma. Theater background, I think. Yes, he, yeah. he did. He had a theater background. But, you know, he had he had trouble. He had a little bit of a drinking problem. And he had, uh, I think it was in June of uh, 71, he had been involved in a car accident that had injured two people. And that really sent him into the a really deep depression, you know, really bothered him, really upset him. He had that going on, and uh, I think he was just having trouble dealing with Hollywood and stardom and, and, and all. 
all of that. In the early hours of, of New Year's Eve in 1971, uh, Peter Duell and his girlfriend, her name was Diane Ray, they were at his home on Glen Green Street, which is just off of Beechwood. The couple watched his TV show, Ailey Smith and Jones. Uh, she went to bed. He stayed up, and she told the police later that he came into the room. He got a revolver. He said to her, I'll see you later. And two seconds later, she just heard a gunshot in the living room. And as I understand it, he died in front of the Christmas tree. Yes. That's sort of the image in yes. one of the reports. Yep. It was, I think the the Christmas tree was there, and there was his body, which was such a morbid scene. Yes, yes. Um, but there's always been questions about... Was it really suicide? Was she involved? Right. It did sound very suspicious, especially given looking at his life. We don't know, but yeah. looking at his life, he was on a number one TV show. He was a good-looking young man at yeah, 31. 31. He kind of had a lot going for him. He wasn't going to do that show forever. I know there were reports that he was very unhappy yeah. being on a television show. I know that it's a lot of hard work. So what is your takeaway? What do you think? happened. Gosh, I, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. I know it was ultimately ruled a suicide and I think the girlfriend was cleared, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think the only two people who will, who really know are Peter Duell and, and his girlfriend. Yeah. And they're the only two people who really know what happened in that house. It really is tragic because he was such a, an actor on the rise. And in fact, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but when uh, Quentin Tarantino made Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he was inspired to create the character of Rick Dalton, which Leonardo DiCaprio played, based on Peter Duell. Which, when you now put those two stories together, it really makes sense. Because Rick Dalton in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really beats himself up. That scene in the trailer oh, yes. when he's about to go on set. And then when he ultimately does give the performance of, a, of his lifetime. Yeah. And the little girl actress <laughs> said, you know, it's just such a touching, such such a great a touching scene. moment. I'm, I'm sorry that we don't have Peter Duell with us. I know. I, it makes you wonder what could have been. What would mm -hmm. that actor have, have gone on to do? So yeah, it, it's funny because after he died, they tried to carry on with Alias Smith and Jones. They brought in Roger Davis, who was a young actor who actually at the time was married to Charlie's Angel star, Jacqueline Smith. Oh, wow. And, you know, but the show just didn't, it no. didn't have the same chemistry and the same magic and it was canceled. So it, they needed Peter Duell. Yeah. And I think too, with that tragedy, it, it forever tainted. I'm sure, I'm sure that story. Yeah, I think so. I remember when I lived in Los Feliz area, so not far from Beechwood Canyon, I would often drive to the reservoir to do my run around yes. the reservoir. And I remember looking up at one point and seeing up on the hill, the <laughs> kind of tan and peach or pink striped wall. I think it was maroon and kind of yellowish, okay. actually. From I know exactly away, what you're talking yes, about. Yes. Yeah. And everybody was all agog. What is that? <laughs> Who's moved in? And come to find out that that home had just been inhabited by someone by the name of Madonna. <laughs> yes, the material girl moves to Beechwood Canyon. Yes, <laughs> yes. Which caused quite a stir because she pissed every neighbor off because she <laughs> painted this. Well, the, the house has great history because the house was one of the first houses built in Beechwood Canyon at one of the highest peaks. It was built for Bugsy Siegel, the notorious gangster, as a speakeasy. So he would have wow. his card games and his liquor and his women there. And he built a huge tower that would look all the way down Beechwood Canyon. So that he could see. 
see if any or his minions his could minions, see. Yes. Yeah. If, so they would watch for the cops. Right. Because gambling was illegal at, uh, at Absolutely. That point. So, you know, it was sort of a historic house. And then then, you know, Madonna moves in in ninety three, I think, and the first thing she does, she paints it. I mean, it wasn't subtle stripes. It was oh, no. huge, huge horizontal stripes. I, I think it was maroon and yellowish. But it caused such a stink with the homeowners association. So, you know, the neighbors hated her. Right. I bet she didn't get any brownies delivered as a welcome. Uh, I was going to say, there were no casseroles brought to no her door when she moved yeah, in. Right. A creepy thing happened at that house is, um, you know, she had a very famous stalker as one does when one's Madonna. Right. But his name was Robert Hoskins and he was kind of a known stalker of hers because her property was abutted to a hiking trail. Okay. He was for the public. To, that anybody for the public. Could anybody yeah. could get to. He was able to get on the trail and then basically climb the ravine that led up to her property. Fortunately, she wasn't home at the time, but her security guard was there and they had a big confrontation. The stalker said that he was her husband and he was here to see Madonna. Wow. And, you know, of course, the, the guard wasn't buying it. So there was a big confrontation and the guard ended up shooting the stalker. Didn't kill him, you know, okay. but he ended up going on trial. He was, you know, put away, I think for 10 years, something like that. And um, is he released now? Do you know? Well, the funny thing is he ended up going back to prison for something else and he escaped in 2012, I think it was. He was able to break out of a mental facility he was being held in. So, of course, Madonna was terrified and sure he was coming after her, but I don't think he did. But I don't really know if he's in a facility or not now. Right. I don't, I'm not sure what happened to him after that, but... Another strange thing of Beechwood Canyon. Yeah. Right now, it's time for this week's Hollywood Pop Quiz. Steve. Well, in keeping with the Hollywood sign motif, which we're talking about today, the question of today is, originally the sign said Hollywood Land. In what year was the land removed and why? All right. No Googling allowed. We'll be back with the answer to the quiz and more stories from Beneath the Hollywood Sign. There is a corner of Los Angeles where dreams are brought to life. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Where stars are born. Raiders Bars! Top of the world! Where legends are made. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! For over a hundred years, the world has been captivated by Hollywood. But just beneath the stardust lie a million more fascinating stories. Tales of heroism. Villainy, betrayal, passion, tragedy, and triumph that, when sewn together, form an incredible history. The Secret History of Hollywood, available now wherever you get podcasts. Back to Stephen Nan in a minute, but now another stop on the Hollywood tour. When William Holden was cast as the lead in the 1939 film Golden Boy as the violinist turned boxer, it was a lucky break. However, things didn't go smoothly for the young actor as his inexperience and nerves got the best of him. It caused producers to consider replacing him. His co-star, Barbara Stanwyck, who was already a big star with major clout, stepped in. She threatened to leave the picture if he were to be fired and devoted her personal time to coach and encourage him. The rest is history, and Holden and Stanwyck became lifelong friends. And now, back to Steve and Ann from Beneath the Hollywood Side. Welcome back, everybody. 
We want to talk now about something that happened in 1927, once again, in your, <laughs> your idyllic Beechwood Canyon, more scandal. Can My little ta- neighborhood. Your, yes, your little neighborhood. And this one actually really is just a couple houses away from where you currently live, right? Yes. This is a story that I don't think a lot of people really know. It's not one of the famous Beechwood stories like Peg and Twistle and things like that, but there was a great actor named Paul Kelly. You know, he was from New York. His dad owned a saloon in Brooklyn near Vitagraph Studios. And that studio was actually the most prolific film company at the time. Nothing was really happening out in Hollywood then, right? Absolutely. It was really the beginnings of of the movie industry as we know it. Paul ended up having an interest in movies. He appeared on Broadway in the original Little Women, but he also started getting into movies there at the studio. And he was billed as Master Paul Kelly, and he was believed to be the very first child star. Master Paul Kelly. I just hear it, you know, being said like that, right? I love it. One of the movies he made, very famous, was Anne of Green Gables, which also starred Mary Miles' mentor. Okay, and we know... That name sound familiar? Yes, it does, because there was scandal with Mary Miles' mentor in the murder of William Desmond Taylor. That's right, exactly. And Taylor directed 59 silent films between 1914 and 1922. He also acted in them, but his murder, which is a whole nother... We'll save that for another podcast. But as we've said in previous episodes, this web of Hollywood. It's just connected in love and in hate. Well said. Well, Kelly, eventually in the mid-20s, he moved to Hollywood, as everyone does, because he wanted to make it in the movie business. So he arrived and befriended a married couple, Ray Raymond, who was a musical comedy actor, and Dorothy McKay, who was an actress, who had some, you know, modest success. Neither one were huge names or anything. And that couple had a four-year-old daughter named Valerie. Well, they became big buddies and they were also really heavy drinkers, big partiers. They were part of the party scene of Hollywood. I'm getting a theme with this whole alcohol thing. I'm Uh, just saying. Big in Hollywood in the 20s for sure. (laughs) Yes. Well, Raymond's drinking got really, really bad, and I think he was maybe a little bit abusive to his wife, Dorothy. Dorothy turned to Paul Kelly for comfort. Comfort led to love and came this huge affair. Oh, boy. Which caused all kinds of problems, as you can imagine. I see this not going down a good road. (laughs) So eventually, Ray Raymond finds out about the affair, and he confronts Paul Kelly. And he basically calls Paul Kelly over to his home because he wants to duke it out. Okay. And Raymond and Dorothy McKay lived on Cherimoya, which is just a few streets over. Yes, I looked at an apartment once on Cherimoya. Yeah, it's a, a great little neighborhood. So Paul Kelly arrives. By this time, Ray Raymond is already drunker than Cootie Brown, and he's ready to rumble. He is ready to fight for his woman. But he's not as big as Paul Kelly. No, not at all. In fact, I think Ray Raymond was about five foot eight, weighed a buck fifty, and Paul Kelly was this big, hulking, six foot tall, two hundred pound man. So it wasn't really an even fight. Right. Well, the two men kind of go at it, and in the house who witnessed the whole thing was the maid of Raymond and Dorothy McKay, and also four-year-old Valerie, their daughter. Oh. So what happened How was... traumatic. Oh, I, I can't even imagine the child therapy that probably <laughs> came after that. Yeah. But Kelly basically took 
Raymond by the head and just knocked his head against the wall and, and knocked him unconscious. Oh. Uh, you know, it really it, it wasn't much of a fight. I think it was just one blow and Raymond's down on the floor. A little bit later, Dorothy McKay arrives. Paul Kelly was long gone by now, so she didn't know what to do. She just put her husband in bed, <laughs> tended to him. Well, two days later, he died of a brain hemorrhage. Right, because we know whenever you have brain trauma, it's what happened yeah. to... Natasha Richardson. Exactly. Yeah. So if you bump your head, go to a doctor. Go to a doctor right away. <laughs> well, the funny thing was, McKay tried to convince the cops that he had died of natural causes. Oh. So she's already trying to cover up what went down in the Cherimoya This house. is going to get her in trouble later. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This, this will not end well for her. So cops didn't buy it. Paul Kelly was arrested. Dorothy McKay was arrested. Paul was put on trial for murder. Dorothy McKay was put on trial. And the trial was notorious. It was one of those sensational trials like the Mary Astor Diaries or the Errol Flynn rape trial. It was just one of those scandalous, huge trials. Yes, OJ, for sure. During the trial, Dorothy McKay tried to deny the affair with Paul Kelly, but Paul Kelly's houseboy testified that on many occasions he had served the lovebirds breakfast in bed. Well, how lovely. Plus aspirin after their drunken nights together. So that still is the remedy now, right? Breakfast in bed. Yeah, breakfast in bed. So basically the we're not having an affair story did not hold water thanks to the houseboy. That wouldn't (laughs) hold up. That wouldn't hold up at all. And then she also gets on the stand and is rather superior, I guess, would be one way of describing it. She did herself no favors on the stand. When she was questioned about everything, she was very aloof. She had an attitude of superiority. And she basically said that Hollywood people are different and that normal conventions are not necessary for them because they're more sophisticated. Well, there you go. Okay, that means you should get away with murder, I guess, according to Ms. McKay. Exactly. Well, it didn't work. No. Because Kelly was convicted. He was sentenced to three to ten years. She was convicted. I think she was sentenced one to three years, you know, for covering up everything. So he gets convicted for manslaughter. She's convicted for covering it up. But really, she gets out less than a year later. Yes, yes. And is set free. And he gets out not that much after that, yes, right? Yes, I think he spent maybe two years in prison for it. And I don't know if it was for good behavior or overcrowded prisons or or whatever the the reason, but they let Paul and they let Dorothy out. And did they get together? Well, in spite of everything, in spite of the scandal and the ruined lives and everything, they, I guess it's the power of love because they ended up hooking up. Okay. So I guess it was true love. I guess it was worth it. And he even adopted Valerie, the little four-year-old girl that witnessed the beating. Isn't that crazy? And raised Valerie as his own. Wow. So weird. That is. So only five years after the murder of McKay's husband, Kelly returns to Broadway. This to me is such a, certainly power of forgiveness, I guess. (laughs) I mean, or was it really just they wanted a name and he had brought scandal with him and that was probably good for box office, right? Yes. Ticket sales anyway. Yeah. I mean, he was welcomed with open arms back on Broadway. I mean, he just had this great prolific career on Broadway. Eventually, later in like 1948, he even won a Tony as best actor for a play called Command Decision. So this scandal did not stop his career one bit. Or hers in a way, because she produced a play called Women in Prison based on her experiences in prison. (laughs) 
<laughs> and Warner Brothers bought the rights. Yeah, yeah. I guess her tales of being in the pokey <laughs> were pretty appealing. Uh, so they made a movie out of it. You know, it starred Barbara Stanwyck. They made it in 1933 called Ladies They Talk About. Wow. Not a great title. I love it. And I love <laughs> love me some Barbara Stanwyck. So they eventually both end up back in Hollywood, right? He does his, his stint on Broadway, yes. but he comes back and works quite a bit. His career took off after that. It's almost like, and I've, I've heard stories of this after the Mary Astor diary scandal. The next time she was ever on screen, audiences applauded and cheered. So there's something about a, a bad girl or a bad boy that, that people just love because yeah. they welcomed him back. I mean, he worked constantly. He was in, you know, public hero number one with Lionel Barrymore and the Roaring Twenties with Bogart. Uh, he even played General Custer in a movie called Wyoming with Wallace Beery in 1940. So he went on to have a incredible career. You know, I think most people probably know him from The High and the Mighty with John Wayne and Claire Trevor. He was in Ziegfeld Girl with Lana Turner and Judy Garland and Hedy Lamarr. Flight Commander with Robert Taylor. It did not slow him down. No. I mean, he appeared in over 400 movies, yeah, which I, is pretty remarkable. I guess it was probably pre-cancel culture. I wonder what would have happened today. But then again, we have Robert Blake and OJ. And after they got off, their careers didn't flourish. It's it's interesting. It is interesting. So Paul goes on to have a wonderful career. What happened to Ms. McKay? Well, you know, she found success with turning her memoirs into the movie. But after fighting their way to be together, after sentences in prison, after all of this turmoil, they're finally together. And what happens? Dorothy gets into a car accident and dies. Oh. Oh, no. That seems unfair. Yeah, it was in 1940. So they didn't get much time together after all of that. they didn't. They really didn't. She crammed a lot of life into that. (laughs) How was Kelly after her death? He didn't waste too much time. (laughs) I think the next year in 41, he met an extra on one of his movies named Claire Owen, married her, and that was that. She was with him until he passed away in um, 56. What, What is the moral of the story? Crime doesn't pay? Or crime sometimes pays. All right, now another bizarre tale. Another bizarre tale um, from from Hollywood. Well, it's time for the answer to our Hollywood pop quiz. The question was: The Hollywood sign originally said Hollywood Land. In what year was the land removed, and why? Okay, I think I know one part of the answer. I can't remember the year, but I believe land was removed because it was the name of a realty company, ding, right? Ding, 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 ding. Correcto. <laughs> what do I win? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. What happened was the sign was originally made of wood and eventually it began to deteriorate. So the residents who lived up by the sign started complaining. So the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce agreed to repair the sign, but with one caveat. They had to remove the land portion of the Hollywood land sign because they wanted it to be about the community of Hollywood. Right, and not an advertisement. Yeah, not an advertisement for just some fancy upscale housing development. And that happened in 1949. Okay, okay. If you got it right, good for you. Well, you know, funny, another just on that same lines, the sign fell in disrepair again in the 1970s, kind of famously. And they really thought at one point they might just tear it down. But a very unlikely champion emerged. And do you know who that was? You um, I'm going to guess 
Was it Hugh Hefner? It was. A little bird might have told me that. Playboy daddy himself, Hugh Hefner, really stepped in and saved the Hollywood sign. So he he gave the money for it. To well, be he he did to a degree, but he he did this fundraiser, and he was very clever. He symbolically auctioned off each letter to famous celebrities, and I think it was twenty seven thousand seven hundred a pop, and that money was used to construct a brand new sign from scratch and made out of metal now instead of wood, so it lasted longer. And some of the people who invested in letters. It was an eclectic, funky group. It was Alice Cooper, the rock star. Wow. And it was the uh, Gene Autry, the cowboy star. Oh. And singer Andy Williams and, and Warner Brothers music. It was just this so wonderful... old and young and hip. Yes. And, it was like the perfect merging of 70s celebrities. Which is really what Hollywood is. It is. The only thing that I miss about the Hollywood sign is I wish it was lit up. Oh, yes. Which I don't think we mentioned, but when it was originally erected, it came with 4,000 light bulbs that lit the whole thing. And it would flash first holly, then wood, then land, then the whole thing. So it was like this wonderful lit billboard on on the side of the Hollywood Hills. Can you imagine being the person that has to replace all those bulbs? Well, there was a caretaker. You know, the Hollywood sign had its own caretaker. I think his name was Albert Coach. I think that's how you pronounce his name. But his whole job from like 1922 into the 60s was maintenance and taking care of the Hollywood sign. And for the first probably few years of his career, it was all about changing those light bulbs. (laughs) Well, and since we started with the Eiffel Tower... They light the Eiffel Tower. Absolutely, yes. And the Eiffel Tower was not meant to be a permanent structure either. And here it still stands in 2023. So I think we have a lot in common with Paris. (laughs) (laughs) The city of love. And we're the city of love and hate. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to episode four. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at info at fronbeneththehollywoodsign.com. That's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Kubine and Ann McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schneble. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit AirwaveMedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow End with Schneble and Toth. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. That's a wrap.